Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ again. Another exciting lesson. Brother Greg Gwynn from Columbia, Tennessee came and helped us out with our June 2005 Vacation Bible School at the Franklin Church of Christ, teaching our adult class. The series for that week was We Believe. This particular lesson was We Believe Jesus Arose from the Grave. The central moment in all of the Bible, in fact, in all of the history of humankind, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yet many today want to tell us that it never happened. Find out why we can believe Jesus arose from the grave. Open your Bibles and follow along as Brother Gwen helps us understand why we can believe that. Some of you here tonight are not old enough to remember the occasion of men first landing on the moon. Others of us can remember that. I'm figuring right, it's about a little over 35 years ago when that occurred. Here's a little trivia question for you. Who was the first man to step foot on the moon? Well, it was Neil Armstrong, right? We, we remember that. We can re, many of us can remember watching those things happen live. It was a pretty amazing event in its day. And when those astronauts landed on the moon, do you remember who the president was? Well, the president was Richard Nixon. And Nixon made a call to the astronauts while they were on the moon. And he told them that they had accomplished the most significant event in human history. Well, people almost immediately began to criticize Nixon for saying that. That men landing on the moon was the most significant event in human history. And I think those criticisms were probably accurate. Uh, I imagine that there are a whole host of things in the, in the course of human history that were more important than men landing on the moon. That was an amazing thing, but in the, in the big picture, it probably wasn't all that significant at all. But tonight, we want to study about what is surely the most important event in human history. I think I can say that without fear of contradiction. Tonight, we want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the grave. Our statement is, I believe, that Jesus arose from the grave. So we want to talk about the resurrection. It's ultimately important. Now, all the things that happened in the life of Jesus, of course, were important. His virgin birth was important. All the miracles he performed were important. His sinless life was very important. His death on the cross, we're going to talk a good bit about that tonight, it was very important. But if you take away the resurrection... Now, if everything else could have been true, take away the resurrection, and it was all for naught. The resurrection is just that important, and it's very important for us to be able to say with confidence, I believe in it, and I know why I believe in it. Remember, this week we've been stressing the statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we're to be ready to give an answer, prepared to make a defense about what we believe and why we believe it. And so we need to be able to share with others the news about Jesus as he came forth from the grave. We're glad that you're here tonight. Appreciate your presence very much and hope that in our time of study, we can say some things that will be an encouragement to one another and certainly equip us in defending our faith, sharing it with others. And it may be that there's someone here who doesn't really believe that Jesus literally, uh, bodily, resurrected from the dead. And uh, if that's the case, we're glad you're here and we want you to carefully think about the evidence that we're going to be discussing tonight. I'm going to take a deep breath 
because the lesson tonight is going to be off to the races here in just a minute. I was telling Philip Staggs last night that this one has got way too much information to try to cram into one lesson. And so we're going to have to really, really rush, and I hope it's not a discouragement to you that we'll be moving so rapidly. We could easily have spent every night this week talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're going to try to do it in one short session. So uh, hang on, and we'll try to make record speed as we go through this information. Let's talk about just how important studying the resurrection is. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. I think Paul had it exactly right. It's what we were trying to say earlier. That if you cannot prove the resurrection, if you can take away from Christianity the resurrection of Jesus, then we have nothing. And of course, that's one of the reasons why skeptics have attacked the claim of the resurrection so vigorously through the centuries. Because the skeptics and doubters know this as well. They know that if they can disprove the resurrection, then they can ruin the Christian faith. And so they've worked very hard to try and disprove the resurrection. We need to be prepared to defend the truth that Jesus really did come forth from the grave. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. There were many proofs that Jesus was the Son of God, but the ultimate proof and the crowning bit of evidence was His resurrection from the dead. And so let's study the proof that Jesus came forth from the grave. Again, so that we can be prepared to make a defense and tell others about that important event. First of all, let's talk about the death of Jesus. Why would it be important to talk about the death of Jesus if what we're really trying to prove is the resurrection of Jesus? Well, it's a simple point, but a necessary one. Before you can have a man raised from the dead... You've got to have a dead man, right? Now, you may very well know that skeptics, some skeptics and doubters through the centuries have tried to say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross of Calvary. Oh, he was hurt bad, and, and he may have looked nearly dead, and maybe to the untrained medical, uh, un, medically untrained eye, he looked dead, but he wasn't really dead. He was near death, but not completely dead. They put him in the grave. He revived. He came out of the grave. He began to claim that he was resurrected from the dead. And so it's important for us, if we're going to prove that a resurrection occurred, to first prove that Jesus certainly did die. And so let's do that. Let's talk about some of the things that happened to Jesus. We can break them down into sort of three categories. Things that happened before he was on the cross, what it was actually like to be on the cross, and then things that happened to his body after he died on the cross. Let's talk about this first area, the, the things that happened before he was crucified. First of all, we know that Jesus spent a sleepless night of prayer in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41 beginning, Luke writes, He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeling down, prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I think it's interesting that it was Luke, the physician, who recorded that the, the sweat of Jesus, he was in such agony of anticipation as he thought about what was going to occur in the very coming hours. It says that, Luke says, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, 
Some people suggest that that just means that he was sweating profusely, lots of sweat. It may mean that. But others, even others who have medical uh, knowledge of such things, suggest that maybe, in fact quite likely, sweat actually mingled with his uh, blood, actually mingled with his sweat, that's what I didn't say, and that he was sweating as it were actual drops of blood. A man named C. Truman, Truman Davis, who has written about the crucifixion of Jesus from a medical standpoint, said this, Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this phrase, apparently under the mistaken impression that this just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could be saved by consulting the medical literature, though very rare the phenomenon of hemodystrosis or bloody sweat is well documented. Under great emotional stress, the capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock. So here's a medical expert who says that under extreme conditions, sometimes the tiny blood vessels in the sweat glands can rupture and blood becomes mixed with the sweat. And he suggests that that may very well be what happened in the case of Jesus. At the very least, we could say that Jesus was under an incredible emotional trauma because he had perfect insight. He had divine insight into, about, into what was about to happen to him and it was a horrifying thought to consider the pain that he was about to endure. We know that at the end of that sleepless night of prayer in the garden that he was betrayed by a friend. Did you ever wonder why the authorities needed the help of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus? I mean, after all, Jesus was a public figure. He was out in the open and in the public teaching all the time. Why did they need Judas to betray him? Well, Luke explains that for us in chapter 22, beginning verse 2. It says, The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. There's the explanation. They needed to find Jesus when he was away from the crowds. Jesus was still immensely popular with the masses and crowds of common people. It was the Jewish rulers who despised him and hated him so much. They were the ones who wanted to see him dead. But they feared the people. If they'd gone out into the public places where Jesus was with throngs of people around him, if they had seized him at that time, there very likely would have been a mob reaction against what they were doing. And so they were looking for an opportunity to take Jesus when he was off privately by himself somewhere. They needed someone in the inner circle, someone on the inside who could betray Jesus in such a time. And Judas served that purpose. And so Jesus was betrayed by a man who claimed to be his friend. And in addition to that, he was deserted by all of his closest friends. You know, sometimes we talk about Peter and the very vocal denial that Peter made of his, of his master Jesus. But Peter wasn't the only one to desert Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56, it says, All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Emphasis on all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so Jesus was a man alone, betrayed by a friend and deserted by all of his closest friends. I'm suggesting to you that there was an incredible emotional load on Jesus before any physical torture of his body began. 
We know in addition to these things that he was placed on trial. The equivalent, really, of six trials in just a few hours. I use the word trial there very loosely. Because when we think of a trial, we think of justice being done. At least that's what we hope. But in this case, of course, there was no justice being done. And these were, only, these were trials in name only. Uh, as they sought the opportunity to condemn Jesus to death. Jesus appeared before Annas and Caiaphas, two men in sort of a perverted way, sharing the high priesthood. He appeared before the whole Sanhedrin council, before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. And in all of those instances, Jesus was lied about, falsely charged, and humiliated. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, as an example of the kind of lies that they were telling about Jesus, now remember... They were telling these lies for the purpose of having justification to condemn him to death. In Luke 23, verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Well, they tried to get Jesus branded as a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. We know that Jesus actually, in passages like Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, had taught his disciples that they should pay their taxes to Caesar. It was an obvious lie, but it was a false charge intended for the purpose of being able to condemn him to death. Try to picture yourself in that situation. Here it is. It's in the middle of, of the night. All of this transpired during the dark hours of the night and the wee small hours of the morning. They have, they have come and arrested you. Your friends have deserted you. And now they're placing you on trial on trumped-up charges, absolute lies, no truth to it whatsoever, you know that their intention is to condemn you to death and to kill you before the next day is done. Now, think about the load, the emotional load, the emotional stress that that would heap upon you. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 65, it says, Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say it didn't prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palm of their hand. Think about the humiliation and the ridicule. And Jesus silently taking it all. That's got to be one of the most incredible things to imagine. Jesus silently taking it. Here Jesus, the very Son of God, a participant in the creation of the whole universe. And here are these lowly mortal men spitting on Him, slapping Him in the face, taunting Him, tempting Him to prophesy, who, who is it that just smote you in the face? Jesus, of course, could have easily answered that question. But He remained silent. It had been prophesied that he would, and he did. Well, after all of those things, now again, this is all happening to Jesus before he is actually physically tortured. The torture begins. The torture begins with a horrible thing referred to in the Scripture as a scourging. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26, And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Talking about Pilate, the Roman governor. He scourged, he scourged Jesus. Now, we understand that that scourging amounted to being whipped across the back with a whip that looked something like this illustration on the screen. It wasn't a single-stranded whip like a bull whip, but something more like this. If you read anybody who tries to describe how the Romans inflicted such torture, they tell us that here's a, a short-handled whip with many strands of leather. But they usually will describe that the Romans would braid into the ends of these threads of leather Bits of lead for the purposes of bruising the flesh when the whip came down across the back. And then also uh, maybe bits of glass or sharp metal for the, for the purpose of actually tearing the flesh away. And when you read a description of the kind of torture that was inflicted through this scourge, it's amazing. 
the back was just left a raw, bloody mass at the end of this. And huge amounts of blood would have been lost by a victim who had been scourged. There are historical accounts of men who proceeded to die as a result of a Roman scourging. There's at least the distinct possibility that if this had been the end of what they did to Jesus, if they stopped right here, he might have proceeded to die from this horrible, incredibly torturous beating that he received at the hands of the Romans. Now, there's one question that comes to mind, and that is, why did they scourge Jesus if they intended to crucify him? Some argue that that was always the case, that if they were going to crucify a man, they would scourge him first and then crucify him. Others disagree, and I happen to agree with those who disagree. I think that in the case of Jesus, we had the unusual instance of a double punishment. I think that Pilate, who knew Jesus to be an innocent man, was hoping that he could satisfy the Jews if he would have Jesus beaten, if they could see him beaten down, a bloody mess from the scourging. Their, their bloodlust for Jesus might be satisfied, and he could allow Jesus to, to, to be set free. In fact, I think John's account bears out this, this suggestion. In John 19, beginning verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him at all. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. I think Pilate was hoping that when they saw Jesus, now so terribly beaten, they might be satisfied. They were not. They demanded that he be crucified, and of course, Pilate yielded to their will. And so, he was horribly beaten. I don't think we can overstate the degree of torture that that scourging inflicted. But on top of that, we think about the purple robe and the crown of thorns. The Roman soldiers who had scourged him mocked him. He claims to be a king. He must look like a king. A king has to have a crown. And so they braided a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. A king has got to have a scepter. They gave him a reed in his hand, but then they took that reed from his hand and beat it over his head to drive those thorns deeper into his scalp. You know, it's just amazing to think about how painful that alone would have been. After the scourging, we almost tempted to think the crown of thorns wouldn't have been so terrible. But the crown of thorns by itself would have been a horribly painful thing. Again, more loss of blood. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning verse 27, Matthew says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered to him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had played at the crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And so again, Jesus was incredibly suffering at this point. He's lost massive amounts of blood. Uh, it's almost certain that he would have been in a state of shock at this point in the journey toward Calvary. He is forced then to carry his own cross. John 19, verse 17 say he, he said, He bearing his cross went forth to a place that is called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. But Jesus wasn't able, you remember, to make it there on his own. And Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 says, They came out and found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Jesus had to have help carrying that cross to Calvary. My guess is that under normal conditions, Jesus would have had no difficulty carrying that cross. 
He was a man accustomed to hard physical labor. He often traveled long distances by foot, slept under the stars. He was a, a rough man. Uh, in physical terms, he was strong. But now he was weakened by the, the incredible torture that's already been inflicted upon him. Now, mind you, everything that we've talked about so far constitutes things that happened to Jesus before he's ever nailed on the cross. So he's in a bad physical shape already, a really very bad physical condition. As I said earlier, there's the possibility that if they had left him alone now, he would have proceeded to die from his wounds. But they weren't done yet, of course. And they took him to the cross and nailed him there. The cross of Jesus, and I hope you understand I'm just using this illustration to illustrate what a man hanging on a Roman cross might look like. I don't intend for that to be a picture of Jesus. But I, I, I give you that illustration for the purposes of pointing out how Romans nailed a man to the cross. They would nail him with his arms outstretched, as is, as is pictured here, but with the knees bent in such fashion. And that was for a purpose. When the man hung from his arms, he would hang there as long as he could, but after some time, the muscles across the chest that control breathing would become paralyzed from the weight hanging on the arms. And the man would get to where he couldn't breathe. He'd begin to suffer as he struggled for his anger. And so the Romans knew that, and they knew that then he could put the weight on his feet, push up, straighten his knees, push up, relieve the load off of his arms so that he could get a breath of air. But you can imagine the whole weight of your body on a nail through your feet. You could only endure that pain for just so long and the man would sag down again. And so while he hung on the cross, it was a continual process of hanging from the arms as long as you could, then putting your weight on your feet for as long as you could stand it, then back hanging from your arms again until you couldn't breathe anymore. The Romans did this to prolong the agony. There are historical records of men who survived on crosses for as many as two or three days before they finally died. Because the Romans knew how to make it hurt and make it hurt for a long time. And that was their practice. And they were the ones who were crucifying Jesus. There's been some question about whether or not Jesus was really nailed to the cross. Skeptics have argued that the Bible is an exaggeration because they said the Romans didn't nail people to their crosses they tied them to the cross with ropes. But in John chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, after Jesus had been resurrected, He said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And so the Bible claims Jesus to have been nailed to the cross. Actually, we don't have time to discuss all of it, but actually there are some interesting archaeological discoveries that suggest that there's evidence that the Romans did, at least in some instances, nail their victims to the cross. So Jesus was crucified. He hung there on the cross of Calvary from 9 o'clock in the morning till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For six long, horrible hours, Jesus suffered on the cross. And then he died. But they weren't finished with him yet. There are some things that happened to him after he had died on the cross. Um, In John 19, beginning verse 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. Stop there for just a minute. Why would they break their legs? Go back to that illustration we had a moment ago. If you break the man's legs, he can no longer push up. He's, He's left to simply hang from his arms, and in some time he will no longer be able to breathe, And death on the cross usually came from suffocation. 
So they would break the legs to hasten death. In this case, they wanted them to die before sunset because the next day was a special Sabbath. It was the Passover Sabbath. They didn't want these, these men left hanging on the cross. So the soldiers came to break the legs to hasten death. It says that they, they broke the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another Scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. The fulfillment of prophecies here, by the way. We mentioned prophecy last night in one of the proofs of Bible inspiration. We don't have time to comment thoroughly about it. But the amazing prophetic fulfillment that happened in the death of Jesus is just incredible. And it had been prophesied that no bone would be broken and that his side would be pierced. And indeed, that's what happened here. Medical experts have considered what that actually meant, the spear thrust through his side, and that it produced a visible flow of blood and body fluids. And those medical experts who have considered it have concluded that that spear almost certainly pierced through the ribs of Jesus and into the pericardium and the heart, the sac of fluids that surrounds the heart and the heart itself. At this point, it's typically argued by medical experts that Jesus would have lost such massive amounts of blood by this point in time, that the only place in his body where there would have been a reserve or a pool of blood and water, body fluids, to show this visible flow would have been to come from the actual pericardium heart of Jesus. Very likely that that spear pierced through his side and actually into his heart. Now, we've said all that to make a simple point. Did Jesus die on the cross? Let me ask you, did Jesus die on the cross? Could there possibly be any doubt about that? Surely, Jesus died on the cross. There's no way that anybody, in learning those details and understanding the events as they occurred to Jesus, could say otherwise. If you're open and honest, you have to admit, Jesus is dead as He hangs there on the cross of Calvary. Jesus died on the cross. And so what happened to him after he was dead? So we've got the dead man. We're trying to say that there was a resurrection. We're trying to look for evidence of a resurrection. Well, we've got the first point in place. We know that Jesus died on the cross. Now, what did they do with his body? How did they treat and handle his body after his death? Well, we know that there's some interesting information about the burial of Jesus. And we need to know about that because that's very critical to being able to prove the resurrection. First of all, we can talk about the tomb where Jesus was buried. In John chapter 19, verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Now notice that the tomb of Jesus was near. It actually says, in the place where he was crucified, there was this tomb. And so the tomb was right nearby. We know that Jesus was crucified just outside the wall of the city of Jerusalem, and the tomb was right there. That's important. They, the disciples of Jesus or his friends didn't take his body way off into the desert someplace, bury him out there where nobody knew anything about it, and then several days later come back into town and start claiming the resurrection. That's not the case. Jesus was buried right there, right in the immediate proximity of Jerusalem, 
Later, when there was claims of an empty tomb and a resurrection, anybody who wanted to do so could make a short walk outside the walls of the city and investigate for themselves the empty tomb. So the tomb was nearby. That helps to prove to us that there was no foul play involved concerning the body of Jesus. Furthermore, it says that it was a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. So it was empty. They put Jesus in it. And then it was empty again. No doubt about what happened. There was, a bo- there was only one body ever had been in there. It was Jesus's. And when they went to look again, it was empty. The body of Jesus was gone. Furthermore, in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, they said that, it says they laid his body in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. This sepulcher of Jesus, or this tomb, was a tomb that had been hewn out of a solid rock wall. Now, we know that the Jews sometimes buried their dead in caves. The most famous has to be the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham buried Sarah, and others of Abraham's family were buried there too. So we know that the Jews sometimes buried their dead in caves. This was not a cave. Somebody says, so what? Well, if you've ever done any spelunking, if you're a caver, you may very well be aware of the fact that caves often have more than one entrance. There may be an entrance here, but on the other side of the hill, another entrance that comes in from the other way. Maybe more than one or two, maybe several entrances into the same cave or cavern. If this had been a cave, skeptics could argue that although they buried Jesus here and put a rock in front of the, of the, of the burying place, the, the, the disciples of Jesus knew a secret back entrance. They came in from the backside, stole the body out the back. When they took the stone away, the body was gone. And there's your explanation. Well, that explanation doesn't work here, right? Because this was not a cave. This was a sepulcher. The rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, had paid to have a tomb prepared for himself, hewn out of a solid rock wall, a cavity or opening out of a solid rock bluff, And that's where Jesus was buried. And again, that bit of information is very critical. The fact that he was buried. First of all, we might even mention the very fact that he was buried is important. We understand historically that many times crucifixion victims were not allowed a proper burial. Often just cut down and allowed their bodies to rot and the wild beasts and the fowls of the air to to consume their flesh. Not in the case of Jesus, though. He was properly buried by Joseph of Arimathea with the help of Nicodemus, and he was buried in this tomb in a known place, and it was a sepulcher hewn out of a solid rock wall. Furthermore, the burial methods that were used are of significance. John 19 tells us that after this, Joseph of Arimathea, also Nicodemus, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And so, they took the body of Jesus and they used some spices called myrrh and aloes. Well, you know, be careful when you think spices here. When I think spices, I think of those little metal tins that Cindy has in the cupboard in the kitchen, you know. And and one of those little metal tins may last several years because you only use a pinch at a time. That's what we think of when we think of spices. That's not what this was. In fact, notice that it says a hundred pound weight. And although there's some argument about how that would convert to our English measure, almost every authority that I've consulted suggests that this would have been at least 75 pounds of, by our English measure, a, a huge amount of these so-called spices, myrrh and aloes. Myrrh and aloes were extracted from plants and trees, 
And as I've studied that and tried to understand what they were, it was like a gummy, sticky resin. Did you ever climb trees when you were a kid? Well, of course you did. Every kid climbs trees. Did you ever make the mistake of climbing a pine tree? Now that's a mistake. Because when you climb a pine tree, you're inevitably going to get that sap, that pine tar on your hand. And that stuff will not come off. You're going to have to wear that off. Alright? Well, that, if you can picture that, that's sort of what this myrrh and aloes was like. A sticky resin that was extracted from trees and plants. And they brought those, and they used those as they wound the body of Jesus in linen strips. The manner the Jews was to start at the feet was strips of linen, not a big sheet of of cloth, but strips of linen to wind from the feet, and in the in every course as they wound those linen strips around the body, they would put these this sticky resinous stuff, myrrh and aloes. They would wind up under the arms, lower the arms, started at a point below the fingertips, wind again. The scriptures tell us that in the case of Jesus, his head was wrapped in a separate cloth. Jesus would have looked like, although he wasn't. It wasn't exactly the same. It wasn't the Egyptian process. But Jesus, to our way of thinking, would have looked like a mummy when they got done. He would have been all tied up in these linen strips and it would have been all glued together with his myrrh and aloes. It would have been a nearly airtight confinement of Jesus. That's how he was buried. Now, we know also that a huge stone was placed then after putting him in the tomb wrapping him up, as we just described, putting him, putting him in the tomb, and a huge stone was rolled in front of that opening. Mark chapter 15 and verse 46 says, He brought fine linen and took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher which is hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone into the door of the sepulcher. The picture of it would probably look something like this. There are examples of such tombs even today that are visible in the so-called Holy Land in and around about Jerusalem. Here's the opening of the tomb, and here's the huge rock, and it would have, it would have been placed in a trough in such a fashion that when someone wanted to do so, it probably would have been wedged away from the opening, and then when the body was placed inside, the wedges taken loose, with a little help, the stone would roll to the opening and seal it off. Uh, in fact, it's rather interesting. Engineers from Georgia Tech went to that area, considered the kind of rock that's indigenous to the area, how big a rock would probably have been required to seal the tomb. And they've estimated that that tomb could not have weighed less than one and a half to two tons. It was a huge stone. And it was placed there to seal the grave of Jesus. Now then, still not done. What else happened? Well, there were certain security precautions that were put in place. And I'm going to hurry through this because I want to get to the end of this. Uh, Matthew 27, they came and asked Pilate. Pilate gave them a watch. That is, he gave them a contingent of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. And they sealed the stone. And so there were security precautions put in place. Roman guards and the Roman seal to seal the tomb. My guess is that that seal amounted to something that would have indicated if the tomb had been tampered with. Sort of like people used to seal an envelope with sealing wax. I don't know how they did this, but more than likely there was some sort of a seal placed upon that stone so that if it was tampered with, if it was opened or bothered, that seal would have been disrupted and the evidence would have been there of foul play. Okay. So, let me get a breath we talked about everything. We haven't talked about the resurrection yet. Somebody said, I came to hear about the resurrection. We haven't discussed the resurrection yet. 
Well, let's talk about the resurrection. Evidence of the resurrection. I hope you'll see here real quickly that everything we've talked about so far is critical to the evidence of the resurrection. First of all, we have an empty tomb. I'm not going to take the time to read Matthew chapter 28, but that's Matthew's account of what they found there on the first day of the week. The disciples saw Jesus. The disciples began to claim that Jesus had been resurrected. But they're not the only ones who claimed that there was an empty tomb. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 11, let's read just that apart. Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that is, some of the Roman soldiers, came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave large money to the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this thing is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Okay. What about the empty tomb? The disciples claim that on the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. But they're not the only ones who say the tomb was empty. Who else said the tomb was empty? Well, the Roman soldiers said the tomb was empty too, right? And they came into the city and they told the Jewish leaders, the tomb is empty. And the Jewish leaders didn't dispute the fact. And so it wasn't just the disciples who claimed it, but also the enemies of Jesus, the Romans and the Jews. They all admitted that the tomb was empty. In fact, we just really don't have any alternative but to accept the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty on the first day of the week. Furthermore, we've got numerous eyewitnesses who give testimony to having seen Jesus alive after that event. Look with me real quickly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning verse 3. He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And He was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, He was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. There Paul gives a catalog of various ones, more than five hundred eyewitnesses who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to court, and of course a court proceeding is, is all involved in the business of providing evidence to reach a conclusion. Let's say you're going to court. You're going to try to convict somebody of a crime. And so this man, let's say a man, there's a man who's charged with murder. And, and so then the prosecutor calls up a witness and the man gives his name and and, and so forth. And, and the prosecutor says, tell me what you saw. He says, I saw the accused point a gun at the dead man and shoot him. He says, Thank you very much. He, he, he calls up a second witness. And the second witness does the same thing. I saw him shooting. He, I saw that man shoot the, the, the fellow. And he calls up a third. He calls up a fourth. He calls up a fifth. All the witnesses give him the same testimony. And after he's called up about 20 witnesses, all of them say, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. The judge stops and he says, Mr. Prosecutor, how many witnesses do you intend to call? The prosecutor says, i got 500 people lined up out there in the hall who all saw the same thing and intend to give that testimony. The judge says, we don't need to, we don't need to hear all that. You've proved your point. There are eyewitnesses who saw it happen. Could you convict somebody of a crime if there were 500 witnesses to it? Well, obviously you could. Well, we've got over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive, who gave their testimony 
and it's, re- and it's recorded for us in the Word of God. The eyewitness testimony is absolutely incredible. But I want to tell you, to my way of thinking, the most powerful evidence of the resurrection has to do with the changed lives of the disciples. We quoted earlier from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56 when it says, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. How would you describe the disciples at that instant in time? What word would you use? I think, unfortunately, the word that comes to mind is they were cowards. They, or, or deserters. Or, I mean, whatever word you'd use to describe them is a pretty ugly thing, right? Because they did not do well. Now, I'm not trying to cast off on them because my guess is I would have been running faster than they were. But under those trying circumstances, they were cowardly deserters. But then, sometime later, really not all that much later, a few weeks later, those same disciples who had fled in cowardly desertion are standing before the very men who were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And says, those men called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, let me ask you a question. What caused this incredible change? What caused those men to go from cowardly deserters to the kind of men who said, you can do whatever you want to to us, but we're going to tell you what we saw. We saw Jesus. He was resurrected. That was it, wasn't it? It was the resurrection. They knew firsthand. They saw it with their own eyes. They touched Him with their own hands. They knew that Jesus truly was alive. And they were not going to be silenced. Their testimony, the changed lives of those disciples, is proof powerful that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. Quickly, think about answering some of the skeptics. The skeptics trying to disprove the resurrection. Remember, they have tried hard to disprove the resurrection. They they need to take that away. If they're going to destroy Christianity, you know the best way to do it is to take away the resurrection. Skeptics have said that the body was stolen by the disciples of Jesus. Well, let me ask you a question. How could they do that? How could they do that when Jesus' body was in the tomb Guarded by Roman soldiers. You know, uh, it's just, it's just, it's too incredible. We don't have time to go into all the details of that, but just try to imagine them sneaking in there, getting the body and getting out without being seen or heard by those Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. Even if they could do it, how? The follow-up question is, why would they do it? Let's say that we're among the disciples. Let's say me and Edwin were among the disciples. And they said, hey, I got a plan. Hey, Edwin, I got a plan. Let's go steal the body of Jesus. We'll we'll discard it. We'll get rid of it. But we'll claim, we'll start claiming that we saw him resurrected. I think we can get rich and famous this way. Let's try it. Edwin says, okay, I'm in. So we take, we steal the body of Jesus, although doing it would have been a practically impossible thing. But let's say we achieved it. We stole the body of Jesus. We discard it. We begin to make the false claim that we saw Jesus alive. But you know, it doesn't work out. We're not getting rich. We're not getting famous. Instead, what happens is we start getting beaten and thrown in jail. I don't know. After a couple of times, I would have said, Edwin, I don't know about you, but I'm out of here. This plan is not working. Right? That would be the lot. But the disciples never quit preaching about Jesus. And so my question is, how could they have possibly stolen it? And why would they have done it? Well, what it resulted for them was in being terribly persecuted themselves. It just doesn't make sense. What about the argument that Jesus swooned on the cross? He wasn't really dead. 
He might have looked dead. He was nearly dead. He just swooned. He, he, he kind of passed out. And his signs of respiration, heartbeat, were very shallow and weak. They put him in the grave, and he resurrected. Think about that for a minute, and that doesn't work either. Here's Jesus, who admittedly would have been in horrible physical condition, wrapped up in those linen cloths, glued together. He's put behind the, the rock. And we're supposed to believe that he comes to himself, gains enough strength to fight his way out of those clothes, get to the rock, push the rock out of the way from the inside, and then get out past those Roman soldiers without them seeing him. Someone has actually said that if that happened, and this is tongue-in-cheek, obviously, they say if that happened, that may itself be a greater miracle than the resurrection uh, as, it's, as it's described. There's no way that could have happened, is there? That is just literally impossible. And so, we believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And at the conclusion of that, if that's true, and it is, what should we do? And the answer we've been giving all week, learn and obey. If it's true that Jesus is the resurrected Savior, then the only logical response to that is, I must obey. We encourage you to think along those lines. Appreciate your attention very much this evening. Aren't you glad that Jesus came into the world lived among us, died, but was resurrected, so that we, having died in Him to sin, might also be resurrected, not only to walk in a new life here, but resurrected at the end, after we die physically, to be with God forever. What an exciting message Brother Gwen presented in this lesson. And I hope it strengthened your conviction and increased your faith in God and His Word and in the saving message of Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that gospel message, about how to follow and obey it, or perhaps you just have questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. If somebody gave you this lesson, let me encourage you, go on to that website. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. You can download the other lessons in this series, plus numerous other sermons that you can get in audio or outline format. You can download them, listen to them, study them, distribute them among friends and family, neighbors and coworkers, however you want to use them in order to glorify God and strengthen the people for Him here on this world. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly... May you richly bless God.